Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Um, welcome to uh, another wonderful Tuesday evening session. We were just talking about how um, wonderful, we, we had a really special um, book club meeting. There's a, a book club of um, Arab um, women who are all connected to Harvard University that we met with over the weekend. They were reading the Sheikh's book, um, Reasoning with God. Um, and we're just delighted to have um, a chance to ask questions and talk to him about, um, you know, things that he raised in um, his book. The thing that was just so striking and so hopeful, um, you know, like we talk about a lot of things here that sort of make us sad or depressed or frustrated, things in the Muslim world. Um, so it's such a, a beautiful, um, you know, inspirational time when you meet really smart women. I mean, these were like PhDs, doctors, you know, people who um, had all either graduated from Harvard or were currently at Harvard um, from all around the world. They um, interestingly all had a Kuwait connection and they, you know, connected with the professor on that because the professor, you know, was born and raised in Kuwait um, for a large amount of his life. Um, and the, the, what was so hopeful is that you have these incredibly smart, thoughtful, committed women who are just looking for, you know, an Islam that touches their heart and that makes sense. And so they were so excited to engage with Reasoning with God, which is already a really difficult book, um, a very dense book, um, but, you know, very, I think for them, um, both challenging and hopeful. And they were so excited to engage, you know, the Sheikh with, you know, really good questions. Um, and I think from, you know, and they follow the Usuli Institute. Some of them had just learned about the Usuli Institute. But the thing that's just most exciting is that there are people that still really care and that really are looking for um, uh, an intellectual, spiritual, soulful connection with their faith. Um, they, you know, they hear things, they see things that don't jive with what they imagine their faith to be. So when they discover a work like Reasoning with God, it gives them hope and then it gives us hope because um, it just makes it feel, you know, as the Sheikh said, oh my God, someone's listening, someone's reading, someone's out there. And so it was a really rejuvenating um, experience. So, um, you know, I even I recorded it, I would have to get permission to share it, but I just wanted to convey that it was a very, um, I think, energizing and hopeful session. So um, that was really lovely. Um, and then interestingly, I mean, I, I, I didn't really have a lot to prepare to share today, except that I thought, you know, kind of on the other end, um, you know, everyone gets tests, really, you know, sometimes the tests are difficult, sometimes they're not that bad, and sometimes they rise to the level of just earth shattering, you know, we've, like the Sheikh has called them um, zelzalas, which means earthquake. Um, in you know in your life and it's part of living life and you know you have different things that come in and they're they're lessons and so we, we get tested all the time and I think especially as we're doing the Quran um, halakas you know daily we get tests and we just recently got um, a, a zalzala I think maybe not quite to the level of zalzala but gross um, and you know it's like they're always um, you know tests I, I think that they're just reminders that um, you know, it's, I think, one, that God cares because the more difficult the test, the more opportunity to grow and look inside of you and, you know, see what you need to change and see what you can do to improve. 
and it gives you a chance to look back on the other tests in your life in the past that were full of pain but that led to growth and I think that if you're on this path to the divine you have to trust that this is part of the plan um, and that a lot of times when you're in the midst of a really difficult test it's so painful you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel but when you pass it and you look back you see the value of it and how you know why it was so important for you to go through it and and hopefully if you if you handle the the test properly um, you you look for the learning and you look for how to change um, and you know you you recognize that when you turn to God for comfort and for help um, that that's the fastest way I think through the test and that you know um, we, we know from our tradition every you know year you're going to get some pretty difficult tests but um, you know when you stop getting those tests it's when you have to be concerned because then that's when God is like okay fine I'll let you be you know to whatever you want but um, anyway just to say that you know everyone um, goes through it and I think you can um, test your level of patience and test your level of calm and ability to turn to God um, with every test and hopefully that reflex to turn to God will become more immediate, you know, more um, certain, more, um, you know, strong with every test and inshallah, you know, let, uh, um, we're all in it together and that, you know, um, please pray for, for us and um, let's all stay together and stay on this journey forward and grow. So that's it. I'm looking forward to another amazing session. So. Uh, what is the email about Surat al Oh, okay. I'll pull it up. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tabawbi ihsanid ila yawmuddin. Allahumma shrah li sadri wa yassir li ghamri. وأجرني في مصيبتي يا رب العالمين واخلف علي بخير منها لا إله إلا أنت أنت العلي العظيم السورة إن شاء الله for today is سورة القيامة but before we start with سورة القيامة I got a, 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 a message about Surat Al-Najm that I wanted to share with you. Is it Steve Conley who sent it? Where, that, that name sounds familiar. Where's, 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 I don't know where Grace went, but that name sounds familiar. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to read it because um, he, he points out to... Um, certain things about Surah Al-Najm. Assalamu alaikum to you and your family. One point which I'm not sure the professor is aware of concerning the Surah. Note the significance of Ayah number 46. It is the name it is the same as the number of chromosomes, 46, in which human cells accept the sex cells due to the conjoining of DNA from the sperm 
contributing 23 chromosomes, an egg contributing the other 23 chromosomes when they meet and fuse together during fertilization. It is the sex chromosome, X or Y, carried by the sperm, not the egg, which determines the sex of the child. And this fact is alluded to in the particular ayah concerned. So the information contained in the ayah predates the scientific understanding of where the sex of the child originates. Additionally, note that the atoms which make up humans originate in stars, which is consonant with the name of the chapter and Najm. Okay. So he's, uh, this is the, we had a message before uh, in a different surah also pointing out uh, one of the scientific miracles of the Quran. Um, I, of course, have uh, heard before about the, um, you know, I'm aware of the, the, of the theory that um, human beings seem to have been created of stardust. Um, but I, I usually don't cover the scientific material because it's not my field, and I'm not very comfortable speaking about things that I don't have mastery of. Uh, even if I, you know, have familiarity with it. But uh, this is very interesting. Um, so that the, the uh, in Surah Al-Najm, uh, according to um, this message that it accurately identifies what determines the sex of the child. And of course that centuries before that becomes, and there, of course, I mean, I've said this before, although I'm not an expert in, in scientific miracles of the Quran, uh, so I don't discuss these issues, but I think that you have to be very obstinate and pig-headed to ignore um, the scientific miracles of the Quran. I mean, there are just so many of them, and so many of them are so compelling that it, it, you, you need to be just very stubborn and to refuse to accept them. Okay, and you know, people, when if you, you find that I've missed things like this, yeah, please do feel free to write me. It's it's for the benefit of all. So, Surah Al-Qiyamah, um, an early Meccan revelation, uh, in order of revelation, it is most certainly among the early or, or low 30s. So, I mean, and, and, and in fact, Probably it was surah number 30 or 31. Um, and as one of the very early revelations, so it is an anchoring surah. It, it sets the pace for so much of what will come later. 
And we know that it was from the very beginning of Islam an often recited surah. Uh, so there are m many different hadiths that talk about the importance of reciting surah to Qiyamah. Um, and some, you know, talk about the, that you should recite it every, at least every night and, and so on. But uh, these traditions are of, um, of a particular genre. Uh, what they collectively point to is the importance of the surah and the centrality of the role that it played in the early Islamic message. So obviously it, it was cited, it was uh, revealed after Fatha, it was revealed after Ikhlas, um, you know, the, the cornerstone surahs like that. Uh, but it was also revealed after Najm, it was revealed after Abasa, two surahs we talked about. Um, it was revealed after Buruj, um, another surah we talked about. Um, I, in the old tafsir I've done, in the, not part of the Ulum project, but the earlier tafsir, um, I've covered surahs like Atiyan and Al-Shams and Al-Qadr, all of which were revealed before Surah Al-Qiyamah. Um, and Surah Al-Qiyamah is likely revealed right, right after Surah Al-Qara, and right before Surat Al-Humaza, which I believe I've covered in the old Tafasir, before Project Ulum. Did I ever cover Qara? Yes. Yeah. Oh, so I covered both Qara and Al-Humaza. Um, now, as we will see, it is... Um, It's a nuanced surah, and uh, you know, it, it one of these surahs that um, makes me uh, pause and take a deep breath before I engage it, because you're always concerned about doing it justice. And that none of the... Um, layers sort of uh, uh, escape you or slip out of your hand as um, as you take this Quranic narrative on. Okay, so let's um, start. لا أقسم بيوم القيامة. In the study Quran, it says, "I I swear by the day of re resurrection." What's really interesting is that there is in the Islamic tradition a discussion as to whether it is theologically appropriate for Allah to swear by the day of resurrection. Um, and it, it, it's, it, much of the discussion is just, has 
the earmarks of the old philosophical system, very much influenced by Greek philosophy. So we, we're not going to uh, talk about a lot of it. But there is this whole uh, back and forth when Allah says Yawm Al-Qiyamah, is Allah referring to the day of resurrection? And whether you say yes or no, it depends on whether you think that the day of resurrection um, is something that Allah would swear by. The majority reach the reasonable decision that yes, it, it is possible that Allah would swear by the day of resurrection, uh, but that we must understand Yawm Al-Qiyamah in its many nuances. So, on the one hand, Allah is underscoring, you know, La uqsumu bi Al-Qiyamah, putting the day of resurrection right in the center of things, in the affairs of your heart, in the affairs of your life, as we will see. But, Yom Al-Qiyamah, as many have argued, and as the thrust of the surah seems to indicate, is also the monumental day of transition. It is the day where, and, and we'll see why um, in more detail, it's the day where you transition from this life to the next life. It is, and it, it, then it becomes rather fascinating that it is described as Yawm Al-Qiyamah because it is literally you are falling in one life but you are rising in another life. Sufi-esque tafsirs said, yes, it is appropriate to understand it as the day of resurrection and also to understand it as the day of transition. But we see in Yawm Al-Qiyamah a meaning that is driven by the text of the surah itself. And that is the day that you you are able to lift the veil and the, see the truth of your existence. And that, as a moral value, is something that Allah swears by. Now, there are a lot of sources that tell you you have to choose one or the other. I don't believe you do. I think it is perfectly legitimate 
to see these as layers in meaning as we all show. Okay. A big part of the discussion is La uqsimu bi yawm al-qiyama wa la uqsimu bi-nafs al-lawama The study Quran translates it and I swear by the blaming soul. Now al-nafs al-lawama there is a grammatical construction here. وَلَا أُخْسِمُ بِالنَّفْسِ اللَّوَامَةِ That gives rise to an interesting discussion. I'm not going to go through the, the, the grammar because I know that that uh, will alienate most. But whether the grammar means that Allah is saying, I swear by the day of Qiyamah, but I do not swear by al-nafsi al-lawama, the, um, the, the blaming soul, or is it that Allah is saying, I swear by the day of Qiyamah and I swear by the day blaming soul? And depending on how you end up resolving the grammatical debate, you either end up believing that Allah does swear by the blaming soul or does not swear by the blaming soul. Make a long story short, I believe that I'm among those who resolve the grammatical debate by saying that Allah does swear by the blaming soul and that it makes perfect sense and in fact it is not incorrect grammatically as some have argued that Allah would use, it, 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 it's a construction, wala uqsimu, wala uqsimu. That is the the, the, the grammatical uh, rub, if you will. Okay. So, but then this Allah swears by what Allah creates. Allah swears by the sun, by the moon, by the stars. Allah swears by physical objects of nature that are observable in a way empirically verifiable. But here Allah is swearing by a day that is part of Alam al-Ghayb, the world of the unseen. It is not empirical, not until it happens. Not until it happens. It's not empirical right now. And Allah swears by a type of personality. This gave Muslim interpreters a very long pause. Because part of the question, what is the nafs al-lawama? What is this thing that is worth the Almighty swearing by? 
Well, if you say it is the blaming soul, well, that just begs other set of questions. Because a soul that blames, it could be a soul that blames others but doesn't blame itself. It could be a soul that observes the faults of others but doesn't observe its own faults. It could be a soul that doesn't engage in any self-blame in life of this earth, but upon meeting its accountability in the final day, it starts blaming itself. But then that's a product of fear. What, why swear by that? Or it could be a soul that is introspective and constantly looking at its own faults. But if so, how do we know that this blaming soul doesn't get to the point of paranoia where it is no longer just towards the self. So, as I've often told you, our ancestors used to take the Quran far more seriously than we do. So our ancestors had very long and intense debates about these things. And debates not, you know, doesn't mean that they, they're shooting, you know, from their hip. They're, they're, they're studying grammar, they're studying history, they're studying the, uh, the, the uh, linguistic usage, um, and so on and so forth, to try to, to squeeze out what Allah is saying to us and the way that Allah is talking to us. And what emerges from this debate and what eventually became the, the, the majority or the, the predominant position is that Allah is actually not putting the focus on a priori on Yawm al-Qiyamah, but actually Allah is putting the focus a priori on the nafs al-Lawama. And Allah is saying, study the process by which the nafs, the self, engages in accountability. Allah is telling us several things at the same time. Some of you
as the as the the, the Arabic says, some of you. Some of you, the way you engage in blame is in fact, you notice the fault, you notice a faulty action when committed by others, but you are incapable of seeing yourself doing the same. And so you might have a conscience, but your conscience in fact as a moralistic conscience, it is a highly selective conscience that consistently drags you into the into the abyss of hypocrisy. In our human experience, I mean, maybe colonialism would be a best example of that, right? You know, you talk democracy, you talk human rights, but you're oppressing people in the name of democracy and human rights. And some of you simply cannot confront yourself. You don't judge others, but you don't judge yourself either. Your entire life is a life of avoidance. You avoid self-confrontation. You avoid confrontation with others. You avoid confrontation, period. So your entire life is a state, uh, a bland state. And then there is a different nafs al-lawama, the one that is constantly taking a moral inventory of itself, period. Moral inventory of what it says and what it does, what it thinks. So, there is the nafs al-lawama with its many variants and there is the yawm al-qiyamah The variance and the, the, now, Yom al as we said, could be of three types or, or three uh, 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 nuances. How does the different, the different forms of Nafs al-Lawama will fare, how will they fare in the day of resurrection? How will the different forms of Nafs al-Lawama fair in the day of transformation, meaning transition from this life to the other, and how will the different forms of nafs al-lawama fare in relation to the possibility of enlightenment?
So the first step is for you, and this is remarkably, the Quran is like inviting you to concepts. But putting the onus on you to think through what you need to think through. Which is something the Quran often does because you, you need believers in the Quran to be thinking analytical people, not robots. You know, not cattle. So, what type of nafs al-lawama do you have? Do you have a nafs al-lawama? To put it bluntly, but so many theologians, you know, theologians will argue like whether it is possible for a human being to exist without a nafs al-lawama. But, A, let's just say, do you have a nafs al-lawama? And if you don't, if you don't, you're in trouble. Then, then you, then you are spineless, tasteless, odorless. You're nothing. You, you don't take position on anything. And if you do, what type of a nafs al-lawama is it? Is it directed outwards or inwards? And depending on how you understand that nafs al-lawama, how do you see yourself faring at these three different levels? Resurrection, transformation, and enlightenment, as we said. So, then, this rhetorical question that the Qur'an presents us with, أَيَحْسَبُ الْإِنسَانُ أَنْ لَنْ نَجْمَعَ عِظَامَهُ بَلَا قَادِرِينَ عَلَىٰ أَنْ نُسَوِّيَ بَنَانَهُ بَلْ يُرِيدُ الْإِنسَانُ لِيَفْجُرَ أَمَامَهُ Right away, it presents us with this rhetorical question. Do human beings think that we cannot gather their bones? Nay, but we are in fact able to fashion their fingers and toes, banana, we'll, we'll talk about banana in a, in a second. The Quran translates it as, but man desires to defile what lies before him. Uh, um, well, okay, we'll, we'll see, we'll come to it. It's not, yeah. Okay, so... So, how, 
what is it saying and how does it connect? So first, that rhetorical question, don't you think Allah can gather your bones again? Obviously, the rhetorical question is directed at the ultimate issue. Is it resurrection? Interestingly, the answer is not necessarily resurrection. The issue is consequence. You see, the Quran insists that life without consequence, without accountability, has no meaning. If you exist and perish, and that is it, there is no meaning for your entire existence regardless of how much you pretend there is. The only thing that gives meaning is the fact that there are consequences. There's accountability. Why is this an important point? Because there's an interesting debate about gather their bones. A number of theologians said that gather their bones is just a, a euphemism for bringing back human beings to accountability. But in fact, there is no reason to believe that your bones will in fact be assembled for resurrection. You know, if, if you've had, I don't know, a, a bone with a metal, uh, what do you call these metal things that doctors put in your bones? Prosthetic. Yeah, prosthetic thing, right? There's no reason to believe that, you know, you're gonna, your, your bone with the prosthetic is going to come back. Um, but that what comes back is al-anfus al-rawhaniya, that it is, it is the soul. So it's a euphemism for the recreation of, your, of who you are, but not necessarily the bones. Of course, as, as you can probably guess, the, the more literalists, the Ahl al-Hadith especially, said no, God gathers the bones. What is most fascinating and what is this expression Bella Kadrina ala and Nusawiya banana? Because banana doesn't necessarily mean fingers and toes. It could mean two of one things. Well, it could mean one of three things. It could mean fingers and toes, but it could mean I can bring you back with extremities that look very different because banana is usually what animals have, hooves and, uh, and uh, whatever. And, but three, it could mean I will bring you back from your most basic and intricate elements. So people who 
do the scientific miracles of the Quran when they studied Banan they said you know Banan is a reference to in Arabic language it's reference to the most basic elements of life like chromosomes and DNA codes and so if you if you you know again I'm not an expert in it so I don't like to deal with anything that I'm not absolutely confident about in terms of expertise but you'll find a lot written about that and you could look it up um, about the reference to Bala Qadirina and Usawiya Banana and whether that you know centuries before we discovered DNA the Quran is talking about DNA okay بل يريد الإنسان الإنسان ليفجر ليفجر أمامه The study Quran said the man the humans desire to defile what lies before them But that's an odd translation isn't it Is it really the Quran saying that Humans will want to defile what is in front of them. Is there any other translation? I'm just curious. Muhammad Assad says, "Man chooses to deny what lies ahead of him." Ah, okay. Anyone? Anyone else? Uh, in Tafsir Mizan, it's rather man wishes to sin ahead of him other than before you know it's interesting because all of them are like touching upon the core of it um, or, or you know parts of it the other amama is, is it, it, it's it's like saying man thinks of the future And thinks that the future gives, or humans think that the future is far enough removed that they have time to sin. If you really, the essence of that expression is that humans are. It's not that they, they, they want to uh, defile what lies ahead of them. It is human beings are led astray by their hopefulness. That they get tempted, they want to have fun, and they delay thinking about the consequences. This is really important because the way Surah Al-Qiyamah is going to talk about death. That if human beings really thought about how quickly everything is going to come to pass, they would realize that just because they have 
50 years ahead of them, you know, 20 years ahead of them. Yeah, but even human beings, uh, as I pointed out, actually, is that, you know, they quite often human beings will say, I will sin now and repent later. But the Yom Amama that human beings in Yuachir Tawbah wa Yuqaddim al-Ma'asiyah is the, the, the Arabic expression. And so the, the human beings, the tendency that human beings have to say is that, say, well, I still have time to repent. I still have time to repent. But as has been noted by so many, that the longer you do something wrong, Repentance actually never comes. The more something becomes a habit, the harder it is. And eventually what happens is that instead of repenting, you, philo you, philosophize, you philosophize whatever wrongdoing you're committing so that you convince yourself you don't need to repent in, after all. That in the vast majority of situations, this type of plan that, well, it's okay, you know, I'm still young, I can fix it later in my life, uh, doesn't work the way you think it will. And so in this one short sentence, subhanAllah, Allah just gets to the core of something within human psychology that on the one hand say do you have a conscientious self but let me tell you the biggest challenge that the conscientious self has what is the biggest challenge Allah the biggest challenge is that human beings are always saying it's okay I have time I have circumstances. They accommodate themselves. Yes'alu ayyana yawmul qiyamah. Asking when is the day of resurrection. The temptation is when you read this, yes'alu ayyana yawmul qiyamah. Asking the, when is the day of resurrection, you say, oh, it's talking about unbelievers who are saying, when is the day of resurrection? Is there a day of resurrection? No, it's not. It is talking about, yes, unbelievers, but also believers who, because the day of resurrection is so remote, they don't think of it as an immediate possibility. And they don't think in concrete terms of being confronted by it in any immediate sense. So that takes us back that that um, habit of sinning now and I'll worry about it later. It's the same dynamic. 
it is as if the, your inner self is saying, well, it, the day of resurrection is not going to be tomorrow. You know, I, I still have time to have my wedding and do whatever baboose stuff I want to do in my wedding, as a lot of people do. You know, the day of resurrection is not going to be next week. I still have time to go out with my friend and do all the baboose stuff I want to do. That's yes, the day of resurrection, you know, is not going to be before my kids graduate, so if I, you know, it's okay if I take the bribe and fund their school. I have time. That's what it's talking about. Okay. Then, Surah Al-Qiyamah takes you to this remarkable uh, gear shift. فَإِذَا بَرِقَ الْبَصَرُ وَخَسَفَ الْقَمَرُ وَجُمِعَ الشَّمْسُ وَالْقَمَرُ يَقُولُ الْإِنسَانُ يَوْمَئِذٍ أَيْنَ الْمَفَرُ So, So when the eyes are dazzled and the moon is eclipsed, this is the study Quran, and the sun and the moon are brought together, that day humans will say, where is the escape? Now, at the most basic level, you'd read this and say, well, it's talking about the final day. That's the day where, you know, you're going to have all these things happening. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it says, well, if the, the, it starts out with, and this actually becomes really boring, the eyes are dazzled. The, it, the words here, barikal basar, then followed by these descriptions of what happens to the sun and the moon, and then this odd expression of the moon and the sun are gathered. So, of course, the, 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 the literalists say, well, you know, okay, the sun and moon will be gathered. And in fact, according to Ahl al-Hadith, the sun and moon will be gathered together, and both of them will be thrown in hell to burn in hell so that hell can be hotter. For the for the, these are riwayat um, that they have in there, but everyone else had one. They said that the Arabic here does not lead us to believe that in fact the sun or moon are going to go anywhere. It is the perception of the sun, our, our ability to see the sun and moon is what is going to be affected. So for instance, in Matariyidi says, 
فإذا برق البصر وخسف القمر يخرج على التمثيل وليس على التحقيق ولذلك فهو معناه إذا دهش بصره وتحير So he's saying that it is, it is not if you look at the Arabic Allah is not saying that I will do anything to the sun and moon but that your perception of the sun and moon is what is important and your ability to see the sun and moon will be very different and that you whatever is going to happen in the atmosphere in the heavens of the earth is going to shock you and that fits with the day of resurrection narrative which is i.e. the day of resurrection second perspective Second perspective said, well, if you look at the Arabic, it is talking about a time where you as a human being will no longer be able to see the sun and moon as they are. A process of transformation where you will stare in the up, you'll stare in open space, but you'll see nothing. And he said that is exactly a description of the process of death. That empty, blank gaze that people get as they're dying. And they, they, they say a lot about that with in much greater detail. The Sufi asked the seers, said, again, the, the sun and moon are symbols for your relationship to enlightenment. Either your eyesight, meaning your, your, your soul and your intellect, will develop so that you can see the reality of things for what they are. Or they will atrophy. So it is as if you see the sun in the middle of the sky, but you don't really see it. Especially that the Quran says, وخسف القمر خسوف القمر means the utter disappearance of the moon from the sky. A kusuf is the partial disappearance of the moon. Khusuf is complete disappearance of the moon, completely dark sky. Kusuf, with a calf instead of a kha, is partial. So for Sufis, they're saying the, the, the issue is whether you 
become submerged in total darkness. Uh, just so you know, for instance, and they also talk about فَإِذَا بَرِقَ الْبَصَرَ أَتَحَيَّرُ وَدَهَشْ شَاخِصًا مِنْ فَزْعِ الْمَوْتِ وَخَسَفَ الْقَمَرَ أَيْ قَمَرُ الْقَلْبِ لِذَهَابِ نُورِ الْعَقْلِ عَنْهِ وَجَمْعَ شَمْسُ الْرُوحِ وَقَمَرُ الْقَلْبِ they 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 take the the shams and the qamar as the the moon of the heart and the sun of the soul. And, and the point is, is that where are you going with your inner self, with this nafs al-lawam, as we will see. Yeah, so here, this is another passage, might as well. وَالْقَمَرْ كِنَايَ عَنْ ذِهَابِ الرُّوحِ إِلَىٰ عَالَمِ الْآخِرَةِ كَأَنَّ الْآخِرَةِ كَالْشَمْسِ فإنه يظهر فيها المغيبات وتتضح فيها المبهمات والروح كالقمر فإنه كما أن القمر يقبل النور من الشمس فكان فكذا الروح تقبل نور المعارف من عالم الآخرة ولا شك أن تفسير هذه الآيات بعلامات القيامة أولى من تفسيرها بعلامات الموت وأشد مطابقة لها. So just examples of what you find in the tradition of the debates about how do you understand these references. But all of these debates come from the, the Quranic usage of Arabic itself. Now, so whether you are confronted with the day of resurrection or you are confronted with the day of truth, the day of your death and transformation, from, or you are confronted with the reality of either your submersion in the darkness of like a, as if a moonless existence, or you are pleased to know that you have actually elevated yourself to some illuminated existence. The crux is that moment when human beings will come and confront this essential question. يَقُولُ الْإِنسَانُ يَوْمَئِذٍ أَيْنَ الْمَفَارِ Human beings confronted with a pivotal turning point and crisis. And the question that will come to them is, to where do I turn? What venues of relief and escape is available to me? كَلَّا لَا وَزَرْ لَا وَزَرْ is not does not mean there is no refuge, but it's like saying there are no options. Don't kid yourself. There are no options. Ila, 
ربك المستقر There are no options except one المستقر is remarkable expression because it is not just your dwelling is with your Lord but your end your settlement it's like when I say to you when we say about stability is called استقرار right headquarters is مقر if it if you say I've settled on a matter, you say الأمر. So إلى ربك يوم إذن المستقر. Always go to one ultimate reality, and that is the reality of your Lord. There is no way around that, regardless. Of what type of nafs al-lawama you have. Whether you have the conscientious type or you have the lousy type. You are all heading to the same place. And when you are with your Lord, you will be confronted with your record that's it that is a staple issue now the sufi ask the seers point out that it is short-sighted to believe that al-mustaqar ma'allah that the, the the realizing that all roads belong to lead to allah it is short-sighted to think that this only becomes apparent upon resurrection or upon death. But in fact, this is the reality even in our life. But we often refuse to acknowledge it. Um, this take a two-minute break um, because I am trying to convince myself I'm doing a good job with this surah. I don't feel I am, but... So let's take a two-minute break. I'll go give myself a little pep talk. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Just, uh, I want to underscore, it is remarkable that for at the time that these tafasir are often written, that they had the presence of mind to to conclude that when Allah says, of course, you know, you have the, the literalists who said that means Allah will take the, the sun and the moon and throw them in hell. But you also had so many scholars who say things like أَيَّذْهَبْ سُلْطَانُهُمَا فَلَا يَعْمَلَانْ عَمَلَهُمَا وَلَيْسَ عَلَى الْحَقِيقَةِ That means that 
Allah is not actually going to grab the sun and moon, but that Allah will alter the function of the sun and moon on earth. Um, and this is, I mean, this is remarkably developed, mature thought. Okay. Uh, just so you know, when when uh, when Allah says "kalla la wazar," which we said, um, that no, there will be no refuge. Wazar. This is an old Arabic expression that um, al-wadar is actually a strong mountain. That's what wadar means. And so when Allah says, Kalla la wadar, it's, it's, that's why it means, no, there are no options. It's idiomatic. Um, okay. So, where did we leave off? Oh, yeah. كَلَّ لَا وَزَرْ إِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ يَوْمَئِذٍ الْمُسْتَقَرُ يُنَبَّأُ الْإِنسَانُ وَيَوْمَئِذٍ بِمَا قَدَّمَ وَأَخْرَ So, fate, all heads, all ways lead to Allah. And to your accountability, which, as we said, is the meaning of existence. But then, this remarkable discourse in 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 Surah Al-Qiyamah. بَلِ الْإِنسَانُ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ بَصِيرَةٌ وَلَوْ أَلْقَى مَعَازِيرَةٌ. Let's see what the study Quran translates. This is fourteen. Um, indeed, man shall be a testimony against himself, though he prof though he proffers excuses. Yeah, I, I thought that that would happen. Balid insanu ala nafsiya is is much more subtle than that and remarkable. It's It's like telling you this. I know that you are full of excuses. This is walaw alqa ma'azira. Badil insanu ala nafsihi basira is like telling you, but I also know that you know whether you're a good person or not. It is remarkable. It's like saying, you know, cut the BS. And elsewhere, the Quran, Allah says, you know, that human beings are very argumentative. They know how to come up with all types of reasons for why they don't do the right thing. And they don't assign blame correctly. But not saying in so many cases the truth is known to you. Then 
at this point, the Quran then introduces what could be a real surprise because suddenly it tells you from there it goes into لا تحرك به لسانك لتعجل به إن علينا جمعه وقرآنه فإذا قرأناه فاتبع قرآنه ثم إن علينا بيانه so suddenly it's talking about the Quran itself and it's saying don't speed through the Quran don't read through the Quran like a bullet or you know with speed in fact Allah is saying that we will have we it is upon us to collect the Quran because as we know the Quran was written in parchments and then after collecting and when we say inna alayna it's here the alayna is to Allah and the Prophet so collect the Quran recite the Quran after it told you don't do it don't speak through it then follow the Quran ثم إن علينا بيانا بيانا is not explained بيانا is understand it is is um, it's like saying um, internalize it بيان الشيء is when you unpack something and understand its essence So, you pause here for a second and you say, hold on, so wait. We, we, we started out by talking about this, this day. And then, the self. This, this, this critical, self-critical self, or critical self, the self that criticizes others or criticizes itself. And then a warning about the transitions, either transition to the final day, transition to death, transitions in life, but that big moral fallacy that I have time and it's okay if I'm not doing the right thing now because I'll fix it tomorrow. And that stern warning that, you know, everything is to God. And if you're lousy, you know you're lousy. And then it's telling us to read the Quran very carefully. And not go through the Quran with haste. I, I should mention just for your, your edification that 
in the tradition you'll find people who say, oh, these verses, they were telling the prophet uh, that the, that it's, it's sort of, that Gabriel would, would, Gabriel come to the prophet, Gabriel would re tell, recite the, the ayat, the verses to the prophet, and then the prophet, anxious not to forget anything, would start repeating after Gabriel very quickly, and that Allah was telling the prophet, stop repeating after Gabriel very quickly, just let Gabriel finish with the entire surah, and then you can study it. I've looked at these reports, I looked at their chains of transmissions, they're, they're extremely unreliable. But you'll find them, you know, I've, I've even heard them in some Islamic centers taught to kids, although they, they have no basis. But the, the essence of it is that, again, and we've saw this before, Allah wants us to ponder and reflect upon the Qur'an. <coughs> Yeah, I, I uh, bear with me, I'm going to share with you on this point of inna alayna bayana, that we must understand it. I'm going to share with you uh, a quote from the tradition that I'll try to paraphrase because part of what we're doing is to understand also how rich our tradition is. So here, this is his commenting on ثُمَّ إِنَّ عَلَيْنَ بَيَانَ So he says, فَلَهُ فَلَهُ Talking about Allah. فَلَهُ فَاللَّهُ لَهُ مُلْكُ وَمَلَكُوتُ لِقَوْلِهِ تَعَالَى بِيَدِهِ مَلَكُوتُ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ وَالْقُرْآنَ أَشْرَفِ الْأَشْيَاءِ وَأَكْمَلَهَا فَلَهُ أَيْضَ مُلْكُ وَمَلَكُوتُ فَأَمَّا مُلْكُهُ فَهُوَ الْأَحْكَامُ وَالشَّرَائِعِ الظَّاهِرَةِ الَّتِي تَتَعَلَّقُ بِمَصَالِحِ الْأُمَّةِ مِنَ الْعِبَادَاتِ الْمَالِيَّةِ وَالْبَدَنِيَّةِ وَالْجِنَايَاتِ وَالْوَصَايَاتِ وَالْأَمْسَالَةِ أَمَّا مَلَكُوتُهُ فَهُوَ الْأَسْرَارُ الْإِلَهِيَّةِ وَالْحَقَائِقِ الْلَهْوِيَّةِ الَّتِي تَتَعَلَّقُ بِبَوَاطِنِ خَوَاصِ الْأُمَّةِ وَأَخَصِّ الْخَوَاصِ بل بخلاصة أخص الخواص من مكاشفات والمشاهدات السرية والمعاينات الروحية ولكل واحد من الملك والملكوت مدركات يدرك بها لا غير لأن الوجدانيات والذوقيات لا تسمها ألسنة العبارات لأنها منقطع الإشارات فقوله لا تحرك به لسانك لتعجل به يشير إلى عدم تعبيري بلسان الظاهر عن أسرار الباطن والحقائق إلى خلق. It's a very fascinating passage. He's saying that in everything there is mulk and malakut. And I don't know if, 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 if some of you have heard, well, I know that some of you have heard my mulk and malakut tapes. And he says, but the Quran itself has mulk and malakut. And the parts of the Quran that have to do with mulk are all the 
narratives in the Quran that have to do with laws, the do's and don'ts. But the malakut, but the parts of the Quran that have to do with malakut are the deeper meanings that regulate our relationship to the divine. In fact, our relationship to our very selves. And for that, different methods are required that in dealing with these than in dealing with the mulk in the Quran. Um, I have a, a, a whole, I mean, I've given a, a lectures on the idea of mulk and malakut, but um, Okay, but let, let's go back. Okay, so then the, the warning that not to speed on the Quran and to reflect on the Quran. So keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it. How does that fit in? After saying, Thumma inna we must in fact digest the meaning of the Quran. Allah then shifts gear again and says, Verily, you have a bad habit. And what is your bad habit is that you're drawn to the immediate, to this life. And that you tend to ignore the long term, al-akhirah, the other, the other life. And then wujuhun yawma izin nadira ila rabbiha nadira. This is um, 22 and 23. Yeah. Faces that day shall be radiant, gazing upon their Lord, and faces that day shall be scowling, knowing that a spine-crushing calamity will befall them. So then, read the Quran carefully, ponder the Quran, know that you have a tendency to focus on the immediate, on this world, and to overlook the next. But keep in mind that the day will come that there will be radiant faces gazing upon its Lord. And there will be Basara stressed out faces. That's the Basur. Basur is when you're not scowling, but you're sort of stressed out and, and your 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 eyebrows are wrinkled and you're you know stressed. 
تَظُنُّ أَنْ يُفْعَلَ بِهَا فَاقِرَةً The reason that they said spine crushing is it's a literal translation of faqira. And when we talk about the backbone, it's called al-amud al-faqri. Because it's made of fuqur. But تَظُنُّ أَنْ يُفْعَلَ الْفَاقِرَةً is something that idiomatically is when you feel that a big disaster is going to befall you that will crush your bones, not literally, but figuratively, that's a faqr. So for instance, we call poverty faqr because it's bone crushing. Because poverty is bone crushing. So when you say, it's like saying, you know, I just feel I'm in big trouble. كَلَّا إِذَا بَلَغَتِ التَّرَاقِ وَقِيلَ مَنْ رَاقِ وَظَنَّ أَنَّهُ الْفُرَاقِ وَالْتَفَّتْ أَسَّاقُ بِالْسَاقِ أَسَّاقُ بِالْسَاقِ إِلَى رَبِّكَ يَوْمَ إِذِنِ الْمَسَاقِ Some of the most powerful Quranic descriptions of death. كَلَّا إِذَا بَلَغَتِ التَّرَاقِ كَلَّا إِذَا بَلَغَتِ التَّرَاقِ I don't like the translation nay but when it reaches the collarbones كَلَّا إِذَا بَلَغَتِ التَّرَاقِ is like when you get to that point that as you are nearing the end, there is as if a gulp in your throat. Now that gulp is not necessarily physiological, but it's apprehension. It's like, if you've ever been near death, you know exactly what it's talking about. I felt it when I had my heart attack. It's like, uh, is, it, is this it? وَقِيلَ مَنْ رَاقَ وَقِيلَ مَنْ رَاقَ You start wondering whether any, any medicine, any treatment is going to help. That's idiomatically Wakila Manrakas. You and the people around you, you start frantically saying, Is there anything we can do? And then it starts dawning on you that this is really the end. Now that's one of the most remarkable expressions in the Arabic language period. Because literally it means the legs became like intertwined. That's the literal meaning. So in, in the literal meaning, if, if you've ever watched bodies that are dead, I've noticed that in fact a lot of cadavers, their legs are crossed. 
You know, I, I don't know why, but maybe doctors can answer that. But that's not the the the. That, that's just a, the, the sort of the literal meaning. But التفت الساقب الساق, and I'll just read this quote and then I'll explain. أي التفت شدة مفارقة الدنيا ولذاتها وشدة وشدة الذهاب أو التفت شدة ترك الأهل وترك الولد وترك المال وترك الجاه وشدة شماتة الأعداء بغم الأولياء بالجملة فالشدائد هناك كثيرة كشدة الذهاب إلى الآخرة والقدوم على الله أو التفت شدة ترك الأحباب والأولياء وشدة الذهاب إلى دار الغربة التفت الساق بالساق ديماركلي مينز when one hardship becomes intertwined upon another and what are these hardships the hardships of realizing that you're leaving your family that you're leaving your material possessions that you're confronting the unknown whatever fears might befall you and anxieties might befall you at these last moments whatever you might see at these last moments also well means that what becomes intertwined is one foot in earthly life and one foot in the hereafter. So you are now in that process in between. You are transitioning. So at that point, there is a dilemma. فَلَا صَدَّقَ وَلَا صَلَّى وَلَكِنْ كَذَّبَ وَتَوَلَّى ثُمَّ ذَهَبَ إِلَى أَهْلِهِ يَتَمَطَّى What is the dilemma? You haven't prayed. You haven't given charity. You in fact lived in doubt and turned away often and you went to your support system usually people translate it as um, uh, went <laughs> here the study Quran says then went to his people swaggering um, is literally like stretching like this that's tamatti and what it means is that you were in your support group feeling comfortable and safe. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean swagger. It just means you felt entitled. So you didn't pray. You didn't give to charity. You often turned away. But through it all, you had an attitude. And what is the attitude? You felt entitled. 
I'm okay. I have time. Don't tell me, don't talk to me about this stuff now. Yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. I, I should be better, I should do, I should pray, I should, yeah, yeah, I've heard. Okay, thank you. You feel, that is what it's alerting to, you to. Okay. Then comes this very interesting Quranic expression, awla laka fa'awla, thumma awla laka fa'awla. The study Quran translated as the nearer to you and nearer. It's like saying Idiomatically, it's like saying, now you've done it, now you've done it. It's not like nearer to you, but, okay, now you've done it. There's no escape. You've really screwed, your, screwed it up. If we really want to be idiomatic. So, you've really messed it up. You've really done it, this time. Ayakhsabun insanu ayyutraka suda. Do you really think that there is a creator that would create and then not have consequences? Was it not that you were semen emitted, then you became a blood clot, then you were created and fashioned from a blood clot into either male or female? Don't you think that the creator of all of this is capable of bringing you back so that the existence you've had will have meaning? Okay. So now let's go back for Surah Al-Qiyamah. In, in, in my view, it truly, I mean, all indications that it, 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 it had an enormous spiritual effect on the early Muslim community. It warns you. Now you understand why those who said the Qiyamah could either be the day of resurrection or the day of death. Because it talks about the day of death. But it also has a reference there about reading the Quran very carefully and reflecting upon it. And if you reflect upon it, it is in this short surah layering major psychological pitfalls. You could have a conscientious self that looks at its own faults and then you are on a good trajectory to have a different type of Qiyamah, the Qiyamah of Enlightenment. 
the, the key to enlightenment before death is the ability to see your own faults to the exclusion, to the exclusion of the faults of others. If you see your own faults, yeah, I see my own faults, but I also see the faults of others. No, no enlightenment. If, well, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I know I have problems, but other people are much worse, forget it. Enlightenment requires a nafsul lawama that sees its own faults to the exclusion of others. It doesn't care who's worse or who's better. It understands its relationship to Allah and it has a sense of shame about its relationship with Allah. Allah, others might be much worse, I don't care. But I love you. And I care about how I feel about you. And what you feel about me. And there's another psychological pitfall. If you think you've got time. Well, I'm tired today. I'll do it tomorrow. Well, this year it doesn't work for me. Next year I'll try. Well, this Ramadan, it didn't really work. I spent this Ramadan watching Egyptian Muselsas. Next Ramadan, I'll spend my time praying and doing ibadah. Huge pitfall. If you ponder the Quran carefully, then you see that the Quran is telling you then you will not have the Yawm Al-Qiyamah in the sense of enlightenment. And then when the Qiyamah comes of Al-Taffat Al-Saq Bil-Saq, that day of death, yours is going to be one filled with anxiety. Because you don't know where you're going. Or what your, the consequences of what will happen will be. And then the day of resurrection, note in this surah, Allah intentionally doesn't talk about heaven and hell. Allah simply says, you're coming to me. Now, grow up and think about that. Now, note... Precisely what I explained about your relationship to the divine So here is a typical typical sample text of exactly the type of thing that I'm describing. Hold on. Okay, so he says um Uh, or maybe it is in one of his shahras, okay. لَا وصول إلى سعادة لقاء الله في الآخرة إلا بتحصيل محبته والأنس به في الدنيا ولا تحصل المحبة إلا بالمعرفة ولا تحصل المعرفة إلا بدوام الفكر ولا يحصل الأنس إلا بالمحبة ودوام الذكر 
ولا تتيسر المواظبة على الذكر إلا بإقلاع حب الدنيا من القلب ولا يقع ذلك إلا بترك لذات الدنيا وشهواتها ولا يمكن ترك المشتهيات إلا بقمع الشهوات ولا تنقمع الشهوات بشيء كما تنقمع بنار الخوف المحرقة للشهوات So because it, it is a very important quote I'll, I'll translate it in. so he says if you want to understand what this surah wants you to do it wants you for your heart to turn away from the the falsity from false existence but that cannot happen unless you actually feel happiness about meeting Allah. But that cannot in turn happen unless you are able to love Allah and feel Allah's company in earth, in your life on earth. But you cannot fall in love with Allah and feel Allah's company in your earthly life except with ma'rifah, with knowledge. But knowledge itself cannot take place except with dawam al-fikr, when you think about Allah for long periods of time. وَلَا يَحْصُلُ الْأُنْسُ إِلَّا بِالْمَحَبَّةِ وَدَوَامُ الذِّكْرِ But that in itself cannot occur without dawamu al-dhikr, without engaging in long dhikr. وَلَا تَتَيَصَّرِ الْمَوَاظَبَةِ عَالْذِّكْرِ But you cannot engage in long dhikr unless you are able to detach your heart from so many of the pleasures of life. Because it, time, it's always a choice. It's either you spend your time doing something fun or you do dhikr. And it says, but you're not going to be able to detach from the pleasures of life unless Become a shahwat unless you learn to control your impulses and desires. But you do not control your impulses and desires unless you learn to fear Allah's punishment. It's a remarkable passage, all from Surah Al Qiyamah, and it's fairly representative. One last thing, also about Surah Al Qiyamah. Because our ancestors used to take the Qur'an far more seriously than we do, and I always keep saying that, they developed reflecting and studying because Surah Al-Qiyamah told them, don't, read, don't rush through the Qur'an, read it carefully and reflect upon it, which is exactly what they did. So reflecting upon the Qur'an and reflecting upon what it said, they said, well, there are four gradations 
of a nafs. Related to nafs al-lawama. There is a nafs al-ammariya. I'll explain them in a second. A nafs al-lawamiya. A nafs al-mulhima. And nafs al-mutma'inna. Al-nafs al-ammariya is the most primitive form of your nafs. It's the nafs that commands you to want and to fulfill the want without further ado. You must work to get that nafs to become a nafs lawamiya. A nafs lawamiya is, it still commands you to want and to fulfill what you want, but it at least has a conscience about it. So it will often go back and hold you accountable and say, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And now, but then you must work towards from that going to al-nafs al-mulhima. Al-nafs al-mulhima is the nafs that actually, instead of propelling you to want and to fulfill your want, inspires you to elevate through love. Not physical love, but real love. It calls upon you to say, True fulfillment is in love. And yes, the, the, the theologians say love of your children, love of your family, but most of all, love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you are able to fill your life with the understanding of love to all the healthy things that you should love. Love of your neighbors, love of your friends, love of your family, love of Allah, you elevate to a nafs al-mutma'inna, the serene self. Whole discourse, I mean, again, I'm summarizing a very long discussion and a very nuanced discussion all inspired by Surah Al-Qiyamah. May we take the Quran as seriously as our ancestors did. Um, they built a civilization and we've built nothing. Inshallah, if we do take it as seriously as they did, I think we will build a civilization. Inshallah. Okay, walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. And this is Surah Al-Qiyamah. Salaam alaikum. Okay, uh, ready to get started again. So, thank you again. Um, for, for those who didn't hear um, a bit of my introduction, I was really um, praising the, the Arab Women's Book Club. We have a couple of joiners that with us on the interactive group. It was an incredible session, and the professor was just telling me that um, you guys should also consider reading um, Speaking in God's Name next. We, we have like a whole laundry list of things that are good for women. Come on.
Tell them why. Oh, because it's all about women's issues and it's extremely empowering. And tell, tell them to skip the first section of the book. You can tell them; they can hear uh, you. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, skip skip the, the the first section of the book that has a philosophical introduction to Islamic jurisprudence, and just go directly to the section that deals with uh, the fatawa that are demeaning towards women and the way I analyze these fatawa. Because I take a bunch of fatawa that were very deprecating towards women, and I demonstrate that these fatawa are nonsense. Chapter six. Yeah, chapter six. So start from chapter six. Don't don't read all, all the stuff in the well, beginning. Actually, there's the intro. The the intro. Relax. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, Everybody is so commenting the, on where you should start. The introduction and chapters, and then jump to chapter six. I think you should just read the whole book. No, I was going to say we couldn't. I couldn't even do that with reasoning with God. Like I, we kept thinking that it was it was a very heavy read. Um, but at the same time, like we all said, like there's little gems in every section. There's yes, yes there's there little gems in every section. You can't miss it. She but I think miss the gems. Yeah, you don't want to miss the gems. I think it's just it's it's more challenging maybe in the beginning. So if you jump to chapter six and start there and then go back and then okay. maybe it's a little bit more more digestible that way. But it's it's hard. Anyway. Yeah. But these are smart women, so they can, super smart women, yeah. yeah. It's it's really, scary really smart. Cool. Woman power. Intimidating women. <laughs> so Okay, well, I mean, on that note, um, alhamdulillah, thank you again for, this was an incredible, um, Sora, I don't know why you thought you yeah. didn't do a good job. I mean, I think what's everyone here is like, upset. Yeah, like, what's up with that? <laughs> but it's it's the uh, the shaitani attacks that come in. Devil attacks. So, devil attacks, yeah. Okay, so who would like to lead with a question? Sharif? Well, I mean, I, I should definitely not go first. Hi, I'll, I'll, I'll go ask for a quick. I have a oh, quick okay. One. Um, maybe you can help elaborate um, on understanding how to differentiate between um, a dawama versus a, a demonic waswas, and and how they can kind of sometimes intermingle or be used in a way to hurt. Uh, um, well, okay. The, I mean, the 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 question is that the, the you know like a nafsul muaswisa the the one that has a a um, compulsive self doubt as opposed to a healthy sense of um, you know I my mother my mother worked in mental health as as you guys know and. Um, and she would often come home and educate us about all types of patients. Of course, you know, without telling us who the patients were, but just the, the so that we learn. And the one thing I, I remember about, like, people was waswasa, is that, um, no, it, it was their, their, you know, it was an obsessive, uh, and it, not necessarily even obsessive doubt about the self, but obsessive doubt about certain obsessive things um, that they become fixated on. Um, can can self doubt can the nafsul lawama 
undermine itself. In other words, engage in self-flagellation, um, where it it's simply punishing itself. Uh, uh, deconstructively rather than constructively. Absolutely, yes. The, the main difference is that if Laum is not to say, I am a bad person, but rather to say, I, me, I committed an error. It, it, it is only Allah that has the power and the legitimacy to say whether the ultimate judgment, are you a good person or a bad person? You know, don't, don't, don't commend yourself. Uh, you only evaluate your actions. This was a good action, this was a bad action. And, and repeatedly, you take it back to Allah. Allah, if, um, if I'm right that this was something bad, then let me see it very clearly and forgive me and guide me something better. Allah, if this is truly something good, then help me help me believe that it's good or, or appreciate its goodness and reward me for it and help me become even better. So it is the, the fact that everything is directed towards Allah, not simply a process of self-judgment. You know, so when someone comes and says, um, you know, I... They, they give me a long list of their faults and you know I am this and I am this and I am this and I you know I just all things and a lot of the things have to do with undermining their ability to move forward not um, not hold themselves accountable. So for instance, you know, people say things about how they're, they're, they're not good at school and they're um, horrible students and they just can't do, do this. And I say, you know, are you, are you repenting for anything? Or is it just, just you're punching yourself, using yourself as a, as a punching bag? Because if you're not repenting for something, then don't involve God in this. This is not about the nafs of that one. Nafsul Nawama is about saying, I'm sorry to Allah and, and believing that Allah can make you better. So even in school, you know, if uh, I had one, some guy came to me, you know, said, I, I want you to know that I'm a sophomore and I've cheated throughout my fresh, freshman year and sophomore year. And I said, well, well if, if you're saying this to say that you're a loser and you should drop out of school, then... I have nothing to say to you. Uh, but if you're saying this to say that you're really sorry and that you believe and trust in Allah, that Allah can help you if with sincere and clean efforts to become a good student, then I'm with you. I think that is... Sorry, I didn't set up the long course. No, no, it's okay. Amazing <laughs> lecture, as usual. I don't know why you keep 
feeling like otherwise it was incredible. Um, but I would kind of just be interested to hear more on the teaching of um, enlightenment as the ability to see one's own faults, particularly with the exclusion of noticing the faults of others. Um, so my question is, how did the early Muslims put this teaching into effect for, one example, they might have saw um, other Muslims in the Ummah struggling with, with their own faults, um, but wanted to also seek the fulfillment of love that you talked about, um, of seeking love through, uh, or of seeking the higher um, self through uh, fulfillment of love with friends and others. Um, kind of like, so where does, I guess, the nuance come in of enlightenment, enlightenment of seeking one's own faults with the exclusion of others versus also um, attaining and fulfilling love for other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, if we think, you know, the there, there was there was a communal context to, to this because one of the things that we also know right away that the Prophet ﷺ practiced with the Sahaba is to, what the Qur'an emphasizes, that Muslims are, are brothers and sisters. Um, and that the, 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 the idiom, حُبُّكَ فِي اللَّهِ, I love you in God, was something that they would repeat very often to each other. But it becomes a form of hypocrisy if you say it and then you are keeping a tap of other people's faults and um, and speaking about their faults behind their backs. And that the Prophet when he would catch them doing that because they were human and they would err, he would always call this jahili practice practice from the days of ignorance. Um, it's, um, you know, I, I don't, um, um, I was raised, for instance, that with my parents, that it was bad manners to notice the faults of my parents. And I would, I was taught that this is inconsistent with love. Um, that it, it, I should focus on my own faults, and and not think about the 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 ways that my parents are not. Um, and I also would start to do the same with my siblings. Um, and because I was taught to do that with my parents and I was taught to do that with my siblings, it was not that hard to extend it to people that then became part of, um, people I thought of as Muslim sisters and brothers. Uh, what is difficult is that when you find that this type of ethical practice is not that widespread, so it's not reciprocated, uh, then you, you tend to withdraw. Um, I would rather withdraw than commit the sin of um, think of all the ways other people are. And it's people that, and I mean, it, it, um, it, it's one thing when I am doing my job and I'm no, I'm, and I'm, you know, 
I'm not talking about evaluating students, which I do all the time. And evaluating students, you have to take note of their of their intellectual mistakes. But that's very different than when you are noticing the 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 faults of people, so you can think ill of them, um, or that you can feel superior to them, or you can feel better than them. Um, that that. Uh, that's unhealthy. I mean, and it's unhealthy for for the person who does it. I mean, uh, often the people you do it to don't even know you're doing it, and they're oblivious to it. But it eats away at your soul. It 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 um, it in so many ways, and it also invites a lot of demonic influences. I mean. I often don't talk about that so I don't freak people out, but um, in, in the same way that major sins invite demons, um, ugliness in the soul invites demons. Any other questions? Um, I see that a couple of the interactive questions, I think we, we address these. Um, if, if anyone who submitted questions wanted further uh, clarification, go ahead and send it through the chat, but I think we addressed those. I, I have a question. Can I ask one before you get into that? Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about the serene self, the last level. Uh, um. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's so much to say about it because it's it's layers and gradations, right? I mean, it's it's not. Um, uh, you you've experienced one of those selves, uh, my mother, so you you've actually observed an, an example of that. Modernity would be another example of that, but it, it is. Um, Um, the key to it, I, I think, is that it has truly accepted that whatever comes from God or is taken away from God is all good because it's from God. And so it, it, it is at peace with the world. Um, I've never seen a serene self that is judgmental of others. And I've never seen a serene self that is not introspective. Uh, all serene selves are the first to notice their own faults and the first to feel bad about their own mistakes. No one, no one is immune from mistakes. But serene selves shine, the, the best way to put it is that they shine peace and beauty uh, onto others. You know, you just love being in their presence. They're, they're, they, um, uh, they're like a beacon of, and um, the other thing that you, like the people you've met that are like that, um, they, uh, 
go out of their way because the world, because life on earth is not worth much to them in the, in the first place. It takes a lot to be able to come into friction with them. Uh, I mean, they, they, they just... It's not important enough for them to come into friction with anyone. But the, the, the key, it all emerges from an understanding of a mizan. I mean, that is really what, what, if you want, what clicks inside of a soul is that they understand the way that the balance of the world works. And they even understand the way that the balance between evil and good works. And they even understand the very intuitively, even if not philosophically, my mother never understood it philosophically, but she did it intuitively, that why evil exists, when it exists, um, so that she is at the same time was always appreciative of beauty as it existed. Uh, that's the serene self. It, it is the, the earmark of a serene self is wisdom, is hikmah. And as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you know, whoever is given wisdom is given a great gift. Uh, I believe that that type of serenity ultimately it's it, it's a it's a barakah. It's a it's an actual gift from Allah. Um it's not something just that you create. It's something that you work towards and then Allah comes to a point and says, okay, you've earned it. I'm giving it to you. Okay. Hamid al-Ghazali, by the way, writes in his Hayaulamuddin uh, a lot about that. Question. Oh. Um, okay. So th this has happened multiple times, and I'm 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 glad that this happened with halfway through the halakha, so I could have some time to think about it. Because originally, when this when this happened, it happened halfway through, and I felt incredulous and wanted to during Q and A jump on here and give a public service announcement announcement <laughs> but um in the live stream on the chat you should um and this has happened multiple times this is this is common it seems like ethics kind of go out the window because if people were here in person they would not be having these kind conversations but i'm bringing it up because within the context of the surah this is extremely relevant yeah. but, but halfway through a debate took place about hijab um <laughs> and so I mean first of all I'd like to point out that the previous halakha we discussed this at the beginning so it might be useful for those watching to go look at that and there's also an upcoming publication on hijab that that would be good to look at if, if you want to learn more about it but the irony of it being that this surah was about looking at other people's faults <laughs> but then I thought about it and I'm like well I'm looking at their faults and I want to jump in and call them out on it. So, 
My question is, especially for other Muslims, with, with those that we're engaged in this process in, when is the, number one, is there a difference between noticing someone else's faults and it being like a source of beating them down? Or, and the second part of it is, when and is it okay, I mean, is it, because I feel like it, to some extent, if you see someone being unconscious about certain actions, do you call their attention to it? Because there's also the whole element of standing for truth. Well, okay, um, no, I think the, the right thing is to bring it to the teacher, but not tell the teacher who is doing what. Uh, I have no interest in knowing who was discussing um, this or that. The reason that you bring it to the teacher is not because of the issue of the hijab. It's because of the issue of adab al ta'allum. Um, the studying has an adab. And the adab of studying is when the teacher who if they're a real teacher, they spend years and years and years studying and years and years and years preparing material. You know, you get whatever the the fruit of 30 years, 40 years in, in an hour or two hours. Um, the dars, all that must transpire in the dars must be limited to the dars. Um, that, that is lesson, lesson, the, cl the, 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 the class. Um, you know, the, the American type of thing that sometimes I see law students do, and, and if I catch them, you know, there's hell to pay. Um, like, you know, surfing the net while I'm teaching or uh, texting each other. You know, if I catch them, I... I, I I throw a count, I throw a fit. But in an Islamic context, I don't throw a fit. I just say, you know, the, the, the adab of... Etiquette. The, yeah, the etiquette of teaching is that um, you listen and you, you, are, you speak when you are given permission to speak. Um, and so having a side debate about anything is not not Islamic adab. It's just not. Um, it's disrespectful to the teacher. It's disrespectful to the material. Uh, I don't care what the topic is. You can have the debates outside the 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 class, uh, but within the class. And same thing, by the way. I mean, even even more with the khutbah because the Prophet Salam said that any side anything negates your khutbah. I mean, it gets your Juma. That that is even even more serious. But let, let's stay with the dars. Um, so that's really that's uh, you know I don't care what the the merits of what the points are are. Um, I I'm not. I don't see. I don't think anything about Surah Al-Qiyam had to do with the hijab. Um, <laughs> But anyway, it doesn't matter. The, the The point is, is that, and I know that it gets confusing because, in you know, modern technology has cursed us 
with the but it is the equivalent of being in a class and writing notes to each other. You know, like the old system when you would write a note and pass it uh, to the student. Well, it's the same thing, but just because we do it electronically, it, it doesn't change the qualitative nature of the act. And if you're a teacher and you notice people passing notes, then you say, you stop the class, you say, give me that note. And then you look at the note and you read it to everyone and embarrassed, you know. And then, you know, the demons of modern technology have made that impossible to do because you, so you have to pace around the class and see, you know, spy at people's screens. And then if you find the screen that's, you know, then you stop the class, you say, you know, what is this? And I can't do that on the halakha. I don't have the health to, to, to pace around. And even if I paced around, it wouldn't help because this is done electronically. So, so I, we just have to rely on adab. That, that, that's it. That's the bottom line. So, does that answer? Yeah, and I mean, the other part of the question was, is, I mean, is this contextual? Is this just an internal thing of whether I'm looking at other people's faults as, as a personality? Or is this also a commentary that if you see someone doing wrong or you see someone locked in unconscious behavior, then is there a responsibility on you to speak to them? And is it about the intention with which that you speak to them? Well, I mean, of course, it's, it's con if you are a part of a class and there, are an, there is an ethical conduct to that class, there is a code of conduct, and all students are deputized to uphold the code of conduct and to enforce it. So it is appropriate to say to a person, you know, uh, this is against the code of conduct, please stop, or I'm going to have to bring it to the teacher's attention. Um, you know, it, and it's not, you're not doing it because you think low of them or because you think there's anything faulty about them or because you don't respect them, but because the institution has to be respected. Um, you know, I, I don't know if if why the the discussion in the first place, whether it's directed at someone or, or not. Of course, if it's directed at someone, it's a type of thing that we're talking about that, you know. But the, this is not the forum for an intellectual debate about hijab because this is not the topic that we are discussing in this particular halaqa. Um, and because the teacher didn't say, I am now giving you a platform for an open discussion about the merits of that or about the, the, the substantive issue. So, I mean, classes, it, it's, like, it's like this. If you work in an institution, there are rules to the, to, and, and it because we have to learn that just because we're in Islam, it doesn't mean that we can throw the rules out. That's wrong. The, the, you are in an institution, there is a code of conduct that governs everything. In, if you are in a medical practice, there is a code of conduct. If you're in a legal practice, there is a code of conduct. If you're in a corporate practice, there is a code of conduct. Well, in Islamic education, there is a code of conduct. And that's it. And so you are not, it's not that you are 
engaging in personal attacks on anyone. You are just simply enforcing the code of conduct for an Islamic education. That should be, and, and it, you don't think, and you must, you know, it, it, you must avoid any implication that, uh, you know, oh, you're a horrible person because you've done that. It's just, you, you're, you know, this is just against the code of conduct. So we have to stop it, that's all. It's like against the rules. It's like, you know, someone can't walk in here with a, with a beer in hand. But throw them out. Against the code of conduct. You know, it's not, nothing personal to you guy, but you, know, you just can't do that. Okay, any other questions in here? Although having a discussion about that is not really, having, I mean, it's not like the same thing, but anyway. Okay, um, one more question. Um, since the doctor mentioned the creation of evil and the serene self, can you recommend a reference to comprehend the reason behind the creation of evil and tragedies? Because I know people struggling with their relationship with the divine because of that old argument, and they've read different things but are still not convinced. There is, um, there is a good book uh, that discusses but it's it's a, it's a written from a philosophical perspective. Is does do they want a philosophical book of philosophy? I mean, of Islamic philosophy perspective. But it's rather dense. Um. I mean, it's a discussion about what Muslim philosophers said about what evil is. Um, I mean, if you want something, yeah, it's it's. Um, I can, it's on the reading list, I can find it. Uh, I just can't remember its its name right now. Um, Which reading list? The reading list that I gave you for uh, Usuli. Oh, okay, okay. So it's on, um, so maybe I can give a plug to bookshop.org. We actually have um, a list of all the recommended books from the professor within the Islamic context. You can actually buy books there and um, Usuli don't gets a, a portion of the pro, the, the. These are all the books too. that I I read in English about Islam and I recommend. Would that be in the philosophical section? It would be in the philosophy philosophy. But I can I can I mean I can find the exact title, uh, if that's what they want. If they want something less philosophical, because that's pretty dense. Um, uh, I would recommend the vision of Islam as as more accessible uh, by Shitik and Murata. Uh, it, it's more accessible, um, less philosophically oriented, but but it um, and I'll I mean I'll 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 tell you we can leave that for another topic. Um, evil is the absence of good. Um, Allah doesn't create evil. Um, Allah only creates good. And when we fail to embrace the good that Allah creates, that's how evil is created. Um, 
I know that you, if you haven't heard this before, you'd say what? Um, but we can talk about that some other time. But it, it it's like, um, is darkness created or is light created? And I would argue that actually it's only light that's created. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Darkness is not created. Um, that's the type of thing you would, that's the type of discourse that you would read in great detail in the philosophically oriented, the book that discusses Muslim philosophers. But if you want a more user-friendly, then Shittik and Morata, The Vision of Islam, is a good source. You don't remember the name of the first book you were referring to, right? I, I can't. I, but I, I can look it up easily. Okay. Eric Holmesby. Which one? Eric Holmesby. Yeah. Eric Holmesby. Okay, yeah, so the right. author is Eric Holmesby. Holmesby. Holmesby, O-R-M. It's called Theodicy Holmesby. in Islamic Thought. The, what, sorry? Theodicy in Islamic Thought. Theodicy in Islamic Thought. Yeah, that's it. Okay. That's it. Theodicy in Islamic Thought. By Eric Holmesby. Okay. O-R-M-S-B-Y. Y. Y. <laughs> and again, the, um, the bookshop.org um, is thebookshop.org backslash the books that the professor recommends that he read. I think that's it. Does anybody else have any questions? Okay. So thank you again okay, so much. Okay, thank you everyone. Have a wonderful rest of the week and inshallah we'll see you on Saturday um, at 3 o'clock Eastern. Oh, actually, maybe 4. We're, we're going to actually have to, yeah, we might re-look re the time since we're getting close to Ramadan. So I'll send an email out um, on my weekly email. Also, if you haven't subscribed <clears throat> to the Usuli weekly email, you can just go to the website and sign up there and um, You'll get a weekly summary and, of what we've done and some musings from me. And get more of the Harvard people to join. Okay, <laughs> yes, get more of the Harvard Book Club people to join. I was going to ask, are you guys comfortable with, with me telling more people to join? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, for, you know, the, for the interactive group, we ask that people join, you know, I mean, so we can see them too. But we have yeah. also the other option is YouTube, which is live stream. And so if, you know, sometimes people can't make it or they're not comfortable being on the screen, absolutely, the okay. more people that can join us, the better. So please do spread the word. That would be fabulous. Okay. I will as well. And then I, the other question I had was, can you repeat the title of the book that she recommended us to read? Oh, speaking, oh, speaking in God's name, Islamic God's Law, name. Authority, and Women. Inshallah. Okay. Women is in the title. Wait, do you remember the Ghazali book you recommended to? It was in Arabic. What was that? Yeah, Ulum al Din. Oh, oh, that, but that's been translated into English. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the, the uh, what is it called? The Sciences? The revival of the Islamic Sciences. of the Islamic Sciences by Al Ghazali. It's a whole series. It's a fabulous book. Okay, Salaamu Alaikum, everybody. See you soon. Thank you so much. Take care.